Now, once again, with today's Carolina Newsmakers, here's Don Curtis. We're back with Paul Meyer, the executive director of the North Carolina League of Municipalities. And, of course, in our first segment, we talked about the effects uh, on the budgets and other aspects of running the cities and towns and villages of North Carolina that has been caused by the COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, but uh, we are also, of course, interested in the long-term situations that the cities have. And uh, we talked, touched briefly on annexation. Uh, but uh, what are some of the other challenges that the cities and towns uh, of North Carolina are going to be facing during the next 10 years that's high on your list? Well, one that is highly transparent and visible right now is the disparity of broadband coverage across North Carolina. This, this pandemic and folks having to operate remotely in almost every dimension of, of life makes it really clear which part of the state has robust broadband service and who does not. Uh, Ms. Curtis, you and I are communicating right now via a, a video conference. If I was living in a portion, if I was living in a community that might even be 15 miles outside the city of Raleigh, I wouldn't be able to do this with you the way we're doing it right now. So uh, this is this is definitely uh, exposing where economic opportunity exists and where it does not. We do not have wall-to-wall -wall coverage. Uh, cities were uh, taken out of the broadband uh, business uh, back in 2011. Uh, uh, in the in the wake of the city of Wilson establishing and building a fiber to the home network called Greenlight, which is in the city of Wilson, state legislature, uh, at the behest of the uh, cable industry, uh, did not think that the city government should be in that type of a that type of a, a role, and we had a we now have a bill at the state legislature that radically reduces the ability of cities to participate in either capital buy-down or just in the absolute provision of broadband service. And unfortunately, things like that, when you restrict governmental intervention, when there's not profit, you know, profit, uh, profitability in certain parts of our state, makes it really, really hard for uh, folks in rural communities to have the same opportunity to do what you and I are doing right now. Well, especially right now where we're talking about reopening the schools and uh, most of them are uh, certainly including a virtual school as a part of their program. So without broadband, that uh, handicaps the school systems in these areas. That's exactly right. And uh, my guess is you'll, we will, you know, we'll continue to see, you know, there's already population declines in a lot of these communities. And I can only imagine that this hastens that, uh, you know, it, people talk about this as uh as important as electricity, uh, it certainly is. And obviously if you're setting up a business or want to be able to run a modern current business, uh, this is simply something you have to have to make that occur. What percentage of the population is not served by broadband? That's a great question and there are multiple answers. Uh, there are maps that show in our state where there is high, high speed broadband but unfortunately, the way that we define high-speed broadband for those maps uh, is the equivalent of DSL. You remember back to what DSL was? Yes. Way back, way back when. Those maps still define that as, as high-speed broadband. So to give you an answer to that is very, very difficult because I would not define 
DSL is high-speed broadband in, in our current application. So I, I don't know the answer. Uh, ballpark. Got a ballpark. Um, I think I think the maps say that 95 percent of our state is covered geographically. I'm guessing it's probably more in, in terms of what people have a modern system. It's probably in the 70s. 70s, yeah. Uh, is that in land area or in population, or both? Uh, that would pro that my guess is that's probably in in that's probably in land area. That's my guess. But I, again. Uh, you can't, don't hold me to it because I'm not sure. Yeah, I understand. I pushed you on an answer that uh, there may not be one, but uh, but it was fair to ask anyway to find out. Uh, the other problem with lack of broadband has to do with uh, commerce uh, as well because uh, the businesses are at a distinct disadvantage when they don't have broadband. And also now we're finding out that uh, so much medicine and medical assistance is be, can be provided by uh, broadband internet access. Uh, so this is something that we were hearing about, uh, and almost everybody agrees that this is a problem. So uh, how long does this, because I mean, this takes some time, not only does it take money, but it takes time to build this out. So what is the long range solution to this? First of all, how much money do we need to get broadband over most of the state and how long would it take? to build it out. I think the issue is not how much money and how much time. I think the issue is, will the legislature allow diff, uh, creative solutions to be, uh, to, to take hold? For example, city governments, we've been asking the legislature to authorize us to buy down the cost of capital uh, for using, for implementing or lighting up dark fiber or leasing dark fiber to, to private companies to run systems. Now what is dark uh, fiber? Dark fiber literally is fiber in the ground that is not being utilized. Um, so many cities, when they do road projects, put have put fiber in the ground. While the road is torn up, they go ahead and put it in the ground in conduit for a day where that can be utilized, where that infrastructure can be utilized. But opposition from uh, the telecom industry, uh, uh, a lot of those folks don't want cities involved with this in any way. And so we are prohibited from leasing uh, that city-owned fiber uh, to a private company to operate broadband networks. A lot of the opposition to governmental involvement in this is coming straight from the telecommunications industry, cable TV. Uh, they, it's, it's almost as if I won't date you, but nobody else can either. So that's kind of how they're handling that. And so it's not about how much money. I think it's about whether we can, whether we are willing to open up the doors to creative solutions. Uh, the good news is the legislature has provided some funding uh, to the electrical co-ops over the past three legislative sessions to help in this way. But again, these were small amounts of money. Uh, it's a huge problem, um, and if, if we're if we if we care about everybody across the state in terms of you know everybody having equal opportunity to commerce and education. And we just have to have a public policy change on this. Well, this is so important because one of the things that North Carolina has always had is a, a, a fairly diverse uh, uh, distribution of population, and that's beginning to narrow to the point where most of the growth is happening in the uh, Piedmont Crescent and uh, maybe a few areas like Wilmington and Greenville and Asheville. But other than that, most all of the growth is happening in a smaller area, and that's going to complicate some other problems. 
That's exactly right. There are 15 counties where the vast majority of the growth is taking place. And we're seeing population declines in 30% of the counties. Uh, it, this, this, again, lack of broadband, lack of economic opportunity, this is just going to continue forward. And for municipalities that are in these areas, it's get, becoming harder and harder for them to continue to operate, um, you know, a, a viable governmental unit that can, that can assist uh, citizens to grow their businesses and enjoy their lives to the maximum extent practical. Well, it's certainly, uh, it's certainly a serious problem that everyone's looking at. Anything else uh, long range come to mind that uh, is a problem that we're going to have to confront uh, perhaps after the COVID-19 crisis is, is uh, over? I, I think we're going to, I know we have our coastal communities that are, uh, you know, they're, they're, they're being, they're, they are experiencing natural disasters more and more frequently. And, uh, you know, if you, if you think about the ability of a coastal community to survive, it requires, you know, a beach. It requires, you know, houses to be sitting there safe and protected. Um, so there's, I think there's some serious issues about you know, our overall, uh, you know, is there enough money in the pipeline to both protect those properties? Uh, and if there's not, then what happens there? Um, so that's a serious, that's a serious issue. Uh, I, I think other issues that cities are facing, you know, we have, we have a large road network. Um, North Carolina cities uh, own and operate 15% of the road system in our state. Um, and uh, we get a percentage of the gas tax, a very small percentage of the gas tax uh, to, to do that with. And, uh, you know, folks are looking for those roads to work and to be accessible and to be safe. And, uh, the more economic challenges we have in other uh, other areas of running our city, it gets more and more difficult to uh, to maintain those uh, those infrastructure investments. So, uh, th there's no shortage of issues. Uh, I, uh, one other issue I'd like to put out there for you, Ms. Curtis. Uh, obviously, uh, being a police officer right now is a very very tough job, and we are seeing um, we're seeing cities having a difficult time recruiting uh, recruiting for those roles. Now, this is not a new problem. This has been going on for 10 years. I mean, this has probably been going on longer than that. Uh, but we're seeing uh, fewer and fewer people uh, being willing to be to be serving in these public service roles. And uh, obviously, uh, and when you have vacancy rates uh, uh, that you can't fill, uh, that that becomes a serious challenge for for any community. So uh, that one's another one of those invisible ones that's out there. Is that a bigger problem in larger towns or smaller towns? I think it's, you know, anecdotally, anecdotally, it's, it's in both. Uh, I think the small ones are already having trouble retaining their, their police force because uh, somebody would get trained and then they would, uh, they'd leave and go to a bigger city for a bigger paycheck. And uh, they, they spend all the money training them and then they leave and go to, uh, to one of these Piedmont Crescent uh, municipalities. So, I think the small ones have already had that issue, and now the big ones have that issue for a different reason. Paul Meyer is our guest. He's the executive director of the North Carolina League of Municipalities. We're talking about uh, the problems the cities are facing, both short-range and long-range, and we'll be back with one final segment right after these messages. One in three adults has prediabetes. One in three. That means it could be you, your football buddy, your football buddy. Or you, your best man, your worst man, you, 
your dog walker, your cat jogger. While one in three adults has prediabetes, with early diagnosis, prediabetes can be reversed. Take the risk test at doihaveprediabetes.org. That's doihaveprediabetes.org. Wait, did they just say one in three adults has prediabetes? That's 33.33333% of adults. That means it could be me, my boss, or my boss's boss, or me, my favorite sister, or my other sister. That's seven members of my 21-person romantic book club. <gasps> Wait, the one in three could be me, my karaoke partner Carol, or ugh, my karaoke enemy Jeff. I'm going to take the risk test at doihaveprediabetes.org. Brought to you by the Ad Council and its pre-diabetes awareness partners. Tom has been a teacher for over 40 years. One day, I think one of the students had asked the question and he didn't remember the answer. And I also noticed that he was letting his class out earlier than they were supposed to let out. I was really starting to worry. Levi and I talked about how it would change our lives, but he was there beside me. When something feels different, it could be Alzheimer's. Now is the time to talk. Visit alz.org slash stories to learn more. A message from the Alzheimer's Association and the Ad Council. Carolina Newsmakers continues, and once again, here's Don Curtis. We're back on Carolina Newsmakers. Our guest this week is Paul Meyer. He's the executive director of the North Carolina League of Municipalities. Before we get back to Paul, let me remind you that this uh, program is heard on many of our stations in a 30-minute format. So that means you're missing uh, two segments. And if you'd like to hear those two segments, you can go online to carolinanewsmakers.com. And our producer, Jason Kong, has uh, separated those two segments, and you can listen to those. Or if you'd like to listen to the entire broadcast or share it with a friend, you can do the same thing, carolinanewsmakers.com. And also, there's a huge archive of all the programs we've had on in the past, including a number with our guest this week, Paul Meyer. Paul, we start off the program by talking about the impact of COVID-19 on cities, and uh, it, is a, it is a big problem, and it all starts with revenue and budgets. Uh, so uh, we, we talked about that a little bit in the first segment, but let's return again to that uh, and uh, sort of look at it and say, okay, so what are we going to do about those shortages that uh, are, are apparently going to be there because of uh, uh, the economic situation we find ourselves in? So yeah, we're, we are estimating that uh, by the end of fiscal year 2020, 2021, so July, by June 30, 2021, uh, cities will be short about $600 million of current revenue from their current revenue base. And that will either have to be made up through you know, furlough of uh, city uh, employees, cuts to city programming, um, uh, infrastructure projects that are simply not going to happen. Uh, you know, our cities play a role in the overall um, in the overall economy. You know, those local dollars are are in, invested and they're they're put back into the local economy. We are a spark for economic development. Uh, if those pieces don't happen and there's not some help from the federal government uh, in the form of direct relief for cities and for cities. Uh, you will see, uh, you'll end up, if you live in a municipality, you will see some effect on your life or the lives of your children or family uh, or the business that you run. So uh, we are we are working very, very closely with Senator Tillis and Senator Burr to get them to support cities and towns and to, and to approve direct appropriation from U.S. Treasury to cities and towns to provide revenue relief. 
Um, we saw in the 2008-2010 downturn that there was not enough relief provided for cities, and we ended up extending the recession through the cuts that we had. Uh, we expect property tax, uh, re reduced property tax collections to be sort of the tail end of all of this as, in, uh, as families and businesses are no longer able to pay their mortgages or to pay their rent. You'll see uh, property taxes not get paid along the way. Uh, and that just extends what is already uh, you know, a pretty large economic downturn nationally. So uh, we think that uh, the federal government should provide relief uh, to, to cities and towns in North Carolina. Uh, there's been a fair amount of help for the private sector. Uh, and we think that the public sector should get some help as well. And we'll continue to ask uh, the current Congress to do that for us and the state legislature to help to whatever extent they can. So uh, $600 million is a lot of money. Uh, what percentage of the average budget uh, uh, for a, a particular city would that amount to? So everybody's estimating differently. And obviously, if you're, a, if you're a resort town and you rely on occupancy tax or taxes that are generated through people staying in hotels and people buying meals and restaurants and that sort of thing for prepared meals, they're going to see a much larger downturn under this current pandemic because people are just not traveling uh, at the, to the extent that they were. So you'll see differences across our state and different, in different ways. Uh, some cities are estimating that they're going to be down 10 to 15 percent. Um, uh, 600 million, that's an aggregate number. Uh, there'll be some jurisdictions that won't be affected near as badly. Uh, but at the end of the day, if you live in a jurisdiction that's affected very, very badly, or it's a program that you rely on that goes away, it doesn't matter. It's still hurting you as an individual or your family. And as, so, we, point, as we pointed out also, uh, the $600 million has to do with the deficit the cities have. Of course, cities are a part of a county, and the county also right. has services, and they also are going to be affected and have a budget shortfall. Is that going to be similar in size to your $600 million or more? Uh, they are, the county governments, um, they will probably be on a percentage basis will be similar. The county governments themselves are generally larger than the municipal governments. So that the total number will probably be larger for counties, but the percentage will be equivalent. So as you go to work uh, today and this week, uh, the rest of this week and next week, what's at the top of your list? What, what are the major concerns you've got that are immediate? Well, I think the, the immediate piece on my mind is I have a staff. I've got a, we've, got a, we've got a staff we're trying to keep safe. So that's, that's my number one priority. We've got to make sure our staff members are safe and that their mental and emotional health is being tended to uh, because uh, this, uh, um, you know, this is just what it is. Uh, we also think about our city, and can, our, our, uh, our city officials, our mayors, and our council members who are out there on the front line. You know, they're, they're fighting this pandemic directly through city practices. Uh, the first responders that are out there, you know, they're dealing with, uh, they're dealing with this directly. And obviously, uh, we want to make sure those individuals are safe and cared for as well. Uh, I think beyond that, though, it's, it's, again, pushing our congressional delegation to do the right thing and, uh, and to provide the relief, the relief that we need. Well, we hear, we hear a term called the new normal. And uh, if you're looking ahead to the new normal, uh, we're not quite sure when that new normal is going to take effect. But uh, 
what are some of the things that you're learning out of this crisis that may actually, uh, in the long run, actually help us in some ways? Well, we're learning that, uh, that, that people can successfully conduct democracy and government in a virtual and remote way. Uh, that can be done. The traditional way that city council members and mayors have interacted with uh, with their electorate and citizens has usually been very much in person. Uh, but assuming there's broadband and assuming people can can interact remotely, uh, we are finding that yes, government can be conducted uh, in a in a in an alternative manner. Now, whether we're communicating as effectively, that is certainly a question that we're struggling with. It's it is. Uh, there's nothing like being with somebody face to face. And, uh, and, and obviously we have mayors and council members now who are responsible for the mental health of their citizens in ways that they never were before. And that's a challenge. I think you told me, uh, I believe this was in one of our breaks that, uh, you recently had a virtual meeting of the cities and it was the largest attendance you'd had in some time. That's exactly right. We, uh, we traditionally have a conference. It's all in person. And uh, as you might imagine, local elected officials love to network and connect with other local elected officials. In our virtual environment, though, we were able to get educational programming to them in ways that were more cost-effective and more readily uh, available for, uh, for cities and towns of all sizes and shapes, no matter where they're located. So there was an advantage in that way. Well, we also spent a lot of time in one of the earlier segments talking about broadband. And so if you missed that segment, you might want to go back and listen to that. And we also touched on the fact that uh, manpower, especially at the police departments, as far as uh, filling uh, open positions is, is a problem. Paul, we certainly appreciate you taking time to be with us. Paul Meyer, the executive director of the North Carolina League of Municipalities, uh, all of our cities and counties, as well as state government, facing a lot of issues that uh, are very, very, very concerning to all of our citizens. Uh, we will uh, invite you to be with us again next week when Jason Kong, our producer, will have another interesting guest for us. In the meantime, if you'd like to hear a repeat of this broadcast, go to carolinanewsmakers.com. That's carolinanewsmakers.com. The next week, same time. Have a nice week, everybody. Carolina Newsmakers is a production of NCN and is heard each week on a network of North Carolina's leading radio stations. To hear a repeat of this broadcast, go to carolinanewsmakers.com. Carolina Newsmakers is produced by Jason Kong. Network engineer is Alan Sherrill. I'm Scott Fitzgerald inviting you to join us again next week, same time, for Carolina Newsmakers. Newsmakers.